This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Anthony Fury. Thanks for joining us for the latest episode of Full Common. Please consider subscribing if you haven't already. Free speech matters, and one of the best places you can exercise your free speech is online, right? Well, for now. But in Canada, there are now a variety of attempts to regulate the online realm in a way that some experts warn could seriously erode our freedoms of expression in Canada. And pretty much all of these attempts right now are coming from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his liberal government. Let's take a look at those various pieces of legislation and try to figure out what's exactly going on here. Michael Geist is our guest today. He is professor of law at University of Ottawa and the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law. He has been one of the main voices speaking out about this important issue, and he's recently unearthed some very interesting government documents that we'll also be discussing. Professor Geist, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Busy time for you right now. Yeah, it certainly has been. There's no shortage of Legislative, there are no shortage of legislative initiatives right now, and many of them, as, as you suggest, involve the Internet and have implications for a wide range of, of freedoms and issues online, and certainly freedom of expression would be at the very top of the list. Yeah, and it's great to have you on because we can do the in-depth analysis uh, going piece by piece on all of this. But first of all, I, I got to be blunt. Would you say it's fair to say that Justin Trudeau is effectively trying to censor what people can and can't say online right now? No, to be honest, I wouldn't say that. Mm. Uh, I would, I would, I would say that uh, the government is seeking to bring uh, a new level of regulation to to the internet, and in the trade-offs between freedom of expression and addressing either cultural policy or online harms or a range of different issues, uh, I think that it's it's in many instances cast aside some of the safeguards and and expression rights. But I'm not sure that I don't I don't think it would be fair to say that what the government is trying to do is to censor what people say online. And can that be an unintended consequence of what's going on right now in terms of the regulatory uh, progression? I think there's no question, but that some of the policies that are being considered have real implications, certainly for people's speech and expression to be Dis- widely distributed certainly uh, has has their implications there there's powers that are being given or contemplated to be given to regulators like the CRTC that clearly have implications for expression so you know i think it's touching on a lot of these issues do i think the government is going to get in and and stop someone from tweeting a particular piece of content or posting a blog post it's not clear to me that the legislation uh, targets that unless the that speech is in the realm of speech that is already illegal speech in Canada. 
One of the things that's interesting is we're currently delving back into a discussion that we had well well over a decade ago in Canada uh, about a section of uh, the Canadian Human Rights Act that would have allowed uh, dealing with things that people say that can subject others to harm in in kind of very amorphous descriptions here. You talked about already illegal forms of speech and obviously there are outright threats and there's libel and defamation and uh, robust laws and an already legal framework around that. But in a lot of these discussions here, online harms, I know we're going to talk about that a lot and you've got uh, a lot to say on online harms, uh, talking about these matters, things that a new digital safety commissioner, uh, that that position may be in the role of, of, of limiting posts or activities um, that run afoul of these things. Do we have this murky terrain now where we're delving into things that aren't just, to your point, previously uh, prescribed issues? Yeah, no, that's a good question. And, and we should note that that online harms at this point in time is is not a bill yet. There are there are a couple of other bills that, that are worth talking about. That's one that you know the government I think intended to bring forward as a piece of legislation. They they held back. I think many believe in light of some of the communication challenges, shall we say, mm. of the former heritage minister Gibo, and instead consulted and gave a sense of here's the roadmap that they want to take. You know, in that consultation, they did limit the scope its scope to what they characterized as illegal harms but you know once you start putting into place you know different oversight mechanisms i think there are risks involved in terms of just how broadly defined some of these issues become and the implications those might have for how people engage with the online environment yeah, you mentioned Stephen Guabo, and back when he was heritage minister, he is now environment minister, he said in, in spring 2021, so about a year ago, he talked about how Canada's world-renowned public servants need to be uh, free from facing online criticism. Uh, there wasn't a lot of pickup on this. My colleague Lauren Gunter wrote a column about this in the Post Media Papers. You also posted about this, though, on your blog, michaelgeist.ca, back last May, concerns about the way Stephen Guabo was talking about that. So, again, I wonder... You know, how did these things factor into what what is what is the the mindset that the government's coming at this legislation uh, from? Yeah, no, that's a good question. And I think it's fair to say that Gibo, uh, you know, not only was a poor communicator, but I think that he often took uh, took a perspective that, you know, in the trade offs between freedom of expression and safeguards against different kinds of harms, tended to side with the safeguards and you know freedom of expression seemed to be of a lesser concern for him i must admit that uh, that i think that he often struck the balance wrong i think these bills often strike that balance wrong and i think that it makes them vulnerable to constitutional challenge down the road hmm. uh, but 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 i you know but i will say that you know i think he he himself it seemed like sometimes struggled with the scope of how the scope of his legislation. So he talked at times about harmful comments or hurtful comments. And there was at one point in time, a belief that there would be an attempt to bring forward legislation that would target that. At, it, by the end, they, they retreated a bit, focusing specifically on illegal harms. One would hope that, you know, officials from justice and, and elsewhere had a conversation about what the Charter of Rights and Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms meant and what those implications would be but you know it's so where they talked off the ledge though it seems like maybe they they wanted to do things a bit more aggressively than they have but then because of what what uh, senior advisors have said and, and from uh hearing from experts such as yourself uh draw attention to the matter maybe they backed down and the original intent was broader 
when it comes to the online harms and the consultation that we got, I think I, I think it's pretty clear that the intent initially was to go broader. In mm-hmm. fact, Ebo did talk ab- about a scope that was broader than than just the illegal harms. You know, by by the end or in the last number of months, when he was promising legislation in, in you know in, in a matter of days or weeks, that ultimately never actually came. It was this consultation instead. There was a retreat back specifically to the illegal harms. I don't know that it's certainly anything that I had to say or that the broader public had to say when it came to that. I, I would hope that at a minimum, there's some, you know, there's a constitutional review of legislative initiatives and that you know, the, the government simply can't put forward legislation that that targets legal speech um, and seek to crack down on it without really going through, I think, a really significant, rigorous constitution, rigorous constitutional analysis. And, you know, it's uh, it's it's tough to justify they can't or they shouldn't because feel like you know they there's multiple pieces of legislation right now about regulating the online realm and i feel like it's definitely something that has inertia for them i, I think it's clearly not just a, a side piece they're clearly uh motivating passions here yeah i would say that you know I'm, i have real concerns about the legislation that they brought forward i think right. that they are vulnerable on both constitutional grounds in some cases as well as on trade grounds in terms of some of the undertakings that we've made huh. for trading partners you sometimes get the feeling that some in government simply want to be able to hold up a mission accomplished sign and say hey we brought forward legislation we've tried to right. deal with this issue and leave the real complications down the road for someone else in a sense to deal with. And so I think that whether that's failing to provide real details about how their legislation around say online streaming will function and just leaving much of that to the CRTC, dealing with the online news piece, and again, leaving much of the questions to future regulations of the CRTC, or dealing with online harms now just in a consultation with a myriad of questions that that were raised and concerns that were raised by really groups from across the spectrum, and in a sense saying, well, someone else will have to figure that out. And, and I think that that's just, it's a terrible mistake to take that approach, that it's simply not good enough to say, okay, hey, we put forward legislation and if court strikes it down or if a regulator goes too far, well, that's not our fault. We tried to put forward a framework. It's, it's I think, incumbent on a government to provide as much specificity and to sort these issues out and to come forward with something that can confidently pass muster. And I think there are real questions about some of the bills that have been put forward. Professor Geist, one of the things that I find challenging about just having these discussions is that there are many moving parts. I've previously described uh, the pieces of legislation that deal with online regulation as this multi-pronged effort, multi-pronged assault, because you've got what was formerly known as Bill C-10, now C-11. We've got online harms potential legislation, which, as you note, is not actually in the legislation form yet. There's a bit of other stuff going on on the periphery as well. How would you, in a nutshell, kind of describe what's going on? Because you've written on a few uh, various moving parts right now in the government, and it's not all the same bill. No, it's not. And so when I think of this internet regulation piece, it's a three-part initiative. And I should note that this is led by Canadian heritage, which itself, I think, raises some questions, right? So, you know, if you're dealing with online harms, for example, 
that sounds like an issue that's more suited to public safety, perhaps justice. If yeah, you're if you're dealing with you know streaming or innovation related issues, clearly there's a, a major role there for innovation, science, and industry. So it's not clear to me why the government has decided that all of these issues vest with Canadian heritage. It's effectively turned these issues into sovereignty questions, cultural sovereignty questions, more than anything. But as I say, there are three elements. The first is the online streaming act. What was Bill C-10 now Bill C-11, which started at least with the premise of trying to target large streaming services like the Netflixes and Disney's of the world, but has captured attention because it's quite clear that both C-10 and even now still with C-11, its scope is more expansive than that and may well include user-generated content. There's then Bill C-18, which is the Online News Act, which seeks to require some of the large internet platforms to pay media organizations. I've raised serious concerns about that because the legislation doesn't just involve payment, say, for reproduction of works. If you're copying the work, one would understand why they want to be paid for it. But even something as basic as facilitating access to news, the mere linking is seen as a compensable act, which I think raises some very serious concerns about how the government envisions the internet. And then there's this online harms piece that, as I say, is not yet a bill, was a consultation. The government then, I think, took the mistaken and unfortunate approach of saying they weren't going to release the actual submissions that they received, instead put forward a a what we heard report that I think now that we have seen the actual submissions, which I obtained under access to information, it's fair to say that that report, while acknowledging that there was real criticism, I think understated the extent to which the there was criticism really from across the spectrum, whether that was individuals, civil liberties groups, internet platforms, and even vulnerable groups, groups that typically would have been viewed as being very supportive of this kind of legislation, also expressed real concern. Well, and that's really interesting because you found these documents through that access to information and you got, I guess, hundreds of pages. The government originally put out a report saying, here's what people had to say in response to our online harms. And they acknowledged that there were some people who weren't crazy about it, uh, but uh, they also said there were some thumbs up, I guess. And what you found was, no, there's actually some, some really wild things that people had said in opposition to this and not just like random anonymous Twitter people sending in their lewd feedback, but actually big corporations like Twitter saying some pretty incredible things. What did you learn? What, what did Twitter say? Yeah, no, that's right. And and so listen, the, the, the what we heard report acknowledged there was criticism. The government said there was criticism. And in fact, they have now created a, another panel to take a look at some of these issues. Although my understanding is that they hadn't even provided the submissions to the panel itself, which I think is, is a bit surprising. But huh. you're right. There there were criticisms from, from a lot of groups, including the platforms. And, and I think one of the things that comes out when you read the actual submissions, as opposed to the, the more sanitized what we heard report, is that it both makes a big difference to actually get the real words, the actual words that were used as opposed right. to paraphrasing. And it also matters to know who said what. And so the, the government's report didn't disclose any of that. It was just, you know, someone said this or someone said that or some some groups expressed this kind of concern. But without knowing with some level of attribution what those positions were and who was taking these different positions, it really kind of dulls the effect of of what those submissions were like. And so you asked specifically about 
Twitter, and and it certainly provided one of the most forceful submissions. Some of the stuff that they said didn't uh, didn't directly make its way into that reporter, at least certainly the actual language didn't. And there are really two elements, or actually three elements that I think are worth focusing on. First, they expressed concern that the plans that the government had put forward, and I'll quote, sacrifices freedom of expression to the creation of a government-run system of surveillance of anyone who uses Twitter even the most basic procedural fairness requirements you might expect from a government-run system, such as notice or warning, are absent from this proposal. So real concerns about requirements for proactive monitoring, for immediate takedowns within 24 hours, and, and the implications that those would have. They also looked at the government's proposals around website blocking and really described those in very harsh terms, said that the proposal by the government of Canada to allow the digital safety commissioner to block websites is drastic. People around the world have been blocked from accessing Twitter and other services in a similar manner as the one proposed by Canada by multiple authoritarian governments, and they cite China, North Korea, and Iran, for example, under the false guise of online safety, impeding people's rights of access to information online. And so real... That's crazy. Website. I mean, that that is Twitter saying, you know, China's doing all this crazy internet police state stuff, and we are hearing echoes of that and what you guys are talking about doing. I mean, that's a that's a wild comparison and accusation to make. Is Is it a fair one? Well, I think there are real concerns about website blocking, and there are concerns certainly I've been expressing for some time. We've seen it arise in the copyright context, and now under this proposal saw it potentially arise in the online harms proposal. And and I think the answer is anytime you've got a government saying we are going to empower someone to order all internet providers. So recognize it's not the government that can actually go in and block the sites. They now then right. need to say we've got the power to order all of the various internet service providers, telecom providers that they've got to institute blocking technologies to ensure that they can block certain websites. And so when you start thinking about creating effectively that firewall, even the requirement to institute that kind of technical capability in all internet providers has huge implications. We'll be back with more full comment in just a moment. This phrase digital safety commissioner that they're talking about in these reports, I think the phrase Orwellian is overused these days, but I got to use it this time. I mean, digital safety commissioner, I don't like the idea that there's an individual who's going to have this this task of looking over Canadians and their internet activity and deciding that is not safe and going to ring up whether it's the cops or, or to your point, uh, uh, you know, Rogers or what have you and say, we got to deal with this. We got to take deal with this person. They are not behaving safely. How is this role going to unfold? Well, we don't know if it will, to be fair, because it was in that consultation and now we're they're going back to the drawing board, or at least they're reconsidering some of these issues through the panel. I, I guess I would say that there is a need for some bureaucracy to address some of these issues. And, you know, I think that there are real concerns, certainly about empowering the CRTC even more when it comes to some of these issues. And they are already doing that in bills like the Online News Act and the and the Online Streaming Act. And so the idea that we want to empower the CRTC even in this area would be a problem. And so they're trying to establish, you know, an additional framework. In this case, actually, it would be even paid by the platforms themselves to try to establish some of those governance, governance techniques. You know, I, I actually think that part of the problem that we have here is that the government is dealing largely with symptoms rather than the foundational problems. There are clearly foundational problems with many of these companies, and we need to be addressing them. And I would point to issues like any competitive behavior, abuse in the marketplace, misuse of data, Fa failure to uh, 
be transparent and failure to abide by the very policies that these companies put forward when it comes to all sorts of issues, including content moderation. Those are the foundational problems. And when you start looking at the, the symptoms, what comes out of that, that's where you start getting into issues like harms and the like. The problem we've got with this government's approach is that they're starting with the symptoms. They're starting with the hardest part. Uh, hardest issue to try to solve when you're trying to get into this issue. What, you know, you know, what is harmful or what is illegal? Who's going to be responsible for determining that? How are we going to deal with it? These are incredibly thorny issues. And it seems to me that if we started with the foundational questions, more aggressive approaches with respect to competition enforcement, getting real data governance and privacy rules, Canada is so far behind in ensuring that we've got up-to-date, mm. modernized privacy rules, ensuring that we hold these companies accountable, uh, both with respect to transparency and in living up to the very commitments they make. That would, I think, deal with a lot of these questions. Yet, for some reason, the government is putting aside the obvious kinds of solutions in favor of these other approaches. Professor Geist, I got to ask you, you said a phrase earlier in the conversation, how the government envisions the Internet. And I think that some people who played a role in the initial creation of the Internet back in the early days would maybe get a little bit of a chill hearing that phrase, that idea of the government envisioning the Internet. They'd be like, well, we don't care. It's not the government's place to envision the Internet. This is supposed to be an open source free domain for everyone. And you talked about, you know, what's legal, what's not legal. But as we discussed, I mean, there's already a framework around that. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, people posting child pornography. That is illegal. And maybe if we need to change the ways to further empower the RCMP to deal with that stuff and prosecute people, by all means, let's do it. Defamation, libel, all that kind of stuff. But when we talk about about them re-envisioning these roles, are, is it going to be expansionist? And, and, and it goes back to the original concern of uh, a lot of people seem to think that saying mean things to people online should make people suffer consequences. And we don't all have a mutually agreed upon uh, definition of what those mean things are. Yeah, that's true. We, we don't. And you know, and, and I do think that there are some that would like to see very aggressive regulation to deal with not just illegal speech, but speech that goes beyond that, that does cause some some amount of harm and says, you know, with the view that the government ought to play a role. Again, I'd come back. I feel offended. I feel bullied. I feel intimidated by your tweet or your Facebook post. OK, well, you know, sorry, it happens. Well, to be fair, those are real. Those can be very real and those can have real world impacts. Um, I, I personally would not simply dismiss it out of hand as saying, well, sorry, that's just life. Um, I think it does have implications for people's expression and I think their their own ability to participate and express themselves. And the, those kinds of things can have real world impacts. So, no, no, for so, sure, but so, can so you I, dismiss so, so, it? I, so I would be, I think we need to be clear. There is a role to try to deal with these issues. And in fact, the platforms oftentimes have policies in place where they say they will deal with some of those harms. Oftentimes, it's the failure to deal transparency and transparently and consistently with those harms that is the problem. And if we try to take steps to ensure that they did a better job of doing that and hold them accountable for failing to do so, we could avoid some of these the, these other, I think, much more thorny and uh, problematic questions that invariably lead to, into questions of to whether or not the government is trying to engage in some sort of censorship. 
Right. And I don't doubt there are very real harms to to people being offensive, being rude. But I, I guess the question becomes, you know, I, I go to a party. I'm polite. I'm well-mannered. Another person, not polite. This guy's being a jerk at a party. We may not like it. We just, Come on, buddy. Like, leave the party. You're just you're just being a jerk and so forth. But at no point are we ever going to have the right to call the cops and say there's a man at a party being mean. And I worry that the way we talk about the Internet right now is we're pushing to a situation where let's basically call the digital cops on this mean person. Well, I think that there were concerns. Actually, it's it's funny you mentioned this idea of proactively calling law enforcement. One of the concerns that actually really sparked a, a, a great deal of consternation from groups like the National Council of Canadian Muslims and, and a number of other uh, marginalized and vulnerable groups was that the government was proposing proactive monitoring of systems and then potential notification of law enforcement for violations and the concerns mm. that those organizations had was you might be trying to protect us but you know auto automated notifications of law enforcement using artificial intelligence based systems that don't have the context is likely to to lead to some serious risks with people getting potential police records or notifications based on something that the AI didn't know didn't notice or didn't didn't fully understand. So I, I think, you know, there, there certainly have been proposals that have talked about more active engagement in law enforcement. And that's that's why I guess part of my message has been I think we need to take a step back from some of those things, better understand the technology and the risks that are associated with it and deal more effectively with some of the foundational issues. It's not a call not to regulate. It's a call to ensure that we've got both smarter regulation and balanced regulation that effectively accounts for freedom of expression. And I think so far what we've seen from the government is that it's failed to do that. To what degree is the liberal government's attempts to change the regulatory framework around online realms specific to them? And to what degree is this them being a product of their times or them following international trends? Yeah, I, it's an interesting question. I, I certainly think that the international trends is playing a big role in this. You know, this is a government that up until fairly recently, or at least several years ago, saw itself as being very supportive of certainly the Internet and Internet platforms. They were, they you know, they, they literally were on the same stage at times of some of these companies. They saw Melanie Jolie, the foreign, former heritage minister, proposed proposed her policies around, let's say, online streamers and wanted to work with the streamers and, and thought that the way to ensure more Canadian film and TV production was to actively work with these companies as opposed to regulating them. You had Justin Trudeau on the same stage as Google and smart city projects. So government at that time really took a, a pretty positive perspective. It's pretty clear that's changed. I think there were a number of events that globally that had an impact in that regard. The Christchurch uh, events certainly in New Zealand, influence from France, and and their move to become more uh, pro-regulatory, and and I would say even the experience that that certain members of Parliament have received. I know when when you talk to MPs, you know at the at you know certainly over a number of years, many of them would cite the abuse that Catherine McKenna faced as minister and say that you know th this this I think personalized the the kind of invective that takes place online and solidified the view that something needed to happen. So I don't think it's about preserving their particular perspective online and diminishing the perspective of others. I think in their case, they see others taking action. I think they have a genuine 
belief that there are real harms online. And I, and I think there's certainly plenty of evidence to support that there are real issues in need of addressing. I, my concern is that the approach that they're taking, um, I think, gives short shrift at times to freedom of expression and oftentimes will prove ineffective and creates its own set of, of harms that the government isn't fully, fully accounting for. I, I'm familiar with uh, those stories that Catherine McKenna told of being subject to, I guess, lots of sexist, uh, you know, haranguing and harassment online, and that's pretty deplorable conduct. And I don't think people should be writing those things to other people. At the same time, so many people face that sort of stuff. If you're out in the public eye, myself as an example, I got uh, you know m- many social media followers, as I know you do as well, and I take strong positions. The past two years uh, during the pandemic, I came to believe that a lot of these lockdown measures were, were not appropriate, and I held those views when maybe the majority of people did not hold them. So I was subjected to a lot of uh, stuff, and and I think you know people. They're not going to say these things to your face. They're not even going to write them in long emails, on tweets. Anybody can put a, a rude thing. So, I mean, my social media for two years has been just like invective poured at me nonstop. I also kind of understand what's going on in terms of these are just people, you know, mouthing off into the void. I know I've put myself out there. I mean, am, am I really have I leaving Catherine McKenna aside? Have I been subjected to online harms in a way that there needs to be some sort of a formal remedy aside from me? just shutting down my account or, you know, deciding not to look at it? Well, let's be clear. There's, you know, and I, and I face some of those things online as well. Yeah. In the case of McKenna, she had actual real real space threats taking place at her at her office. I'm not sure if people are showing up to your home or to your place of office. She did. Uh, and, and that's not and the so, comparison I'm making, but, no, that, but there no, are but, legal no, responses so, to that, are there not? Like, she, she has the right to call the police. There that. are, but to the extent to which... And she should. But the extent to which there is a correlation between what takes place online and then the physical threats, one can well understand why there is a view that something needs needs to be done about it. I'm, I'm sorry, with all respect, this... I, I You know, I've, I've been, been a strenuous critic of the things the government is doing and you know a strong advocate to ensure that freedom of expression is properly safeguarded but that doesn't mean doing nothing at all and so i don't believe that that you get to say whatever you want even once it descends to issues of of legitimate threats that need to be taken seriously there needs to be some mechanism to address those kinds of concerns particularly when platforms say they will address them and if they fail to do so seems to me pretty reasonable to say they ought to be held to account. Now, the government could be doing that. That could be the approach that they take to say, you know what, you've got your policies in place. Why aren't you effectively enforcing them? And yet they're not. They're creating the kind of bureaucracy that we're talking about. They're creating slippery sorts of legislative reforms that have the ability to overshoot or the risk of overshooting. And so I think that's where some of the concerns lie. It's not, at least in my view, it's not with the mere notion that they are seeking to address some of these issues. But, but just to be clear, you're, you're talking about, uh, in the Catherine McKenna example, not the things that we know are outright illegal and that people already have legal recourse to deal with them and call the police about, but you're talking about other things that are a, a step below that but there still needs to be a government remedy. I don't mean the threats. I don't mean the the you know the the, the acknowledged criminal harassment. But you mean a step below that. I don't think we can be willfully blind to the correlation that exists between certain things that take place online and then continue into the offline world. What what we have learned is that not all those threats and those mean comments are idle, 
And so there is a need to address. But what do you mean threats? Do you mean the out, like what do you mean by threats? I think if you take a look at at, at the kind of feed, what her feeds looked like at the time, and I didn't think we were going. And to I don't know the specific into, example, into so I'm not. Thing. Listen, the, it's quite clear that there are threats that are made to people on online all the time, and you know, the, and and the idea that you're entitled to make those threats online because it's online, I'm not sure that that's right either. I do think that there is there is a no, but you are, don't you already have legal recourse if someone threatens you online? You're you're not entitled to. Never, is that not the case right now? Never thought I'd be the person to to be defend to, to be defending some of this this regulation. I stuff, just don't know. I, honestly, I'm trying I'm trying to figure out like and what do you we think, mean by threats. Well, Anthony, realistically, if they're if if we're talking about some anonymous Twitter account, what exactly what is the what, threat? What, what exactly do you think the person ought to be doing? But but what is what what do we mean by the threat? Like the you know, can you give me an example of a threat? I don't mean the Catherine McKenna thing because I want—I want to leave her out of this. But what's an example of an online threat that isn't currently illegal but should be? It's not—it's not so much whether I, this question. I don't think is whether or not we need to create new forms of illegal speech. The because I think that I, I think you're right when you say that many of these kinds of threats are already illegal. But if we've got rules that don't have effective remedies then we do need to take so then there is there is i think certainly a case to be made that there needs to be some mechanism to try to address some of those issues and is there maybe an information deficit in that i have seen recent examples the past few years of people i know particularly people in media uh who have um it's taken a while but people who have been persistently harassing them online have uh, face some sort of legal consequences and they've identified them and then they've got things in the court system or police have charged them. And maybe it's just that that because we're still you know, relatively speaking new to all of this, it's just taking a while for the gears to get going. And we more need a, a system where uh, people know their rights online. No, I think it's more than that. Um, okay. I think that we see certain kinds of hate online let's say uh, anti-semitic hate for example online um i see it happening quite a bit and we know that there are groups that try to identify this and they are encouraged by the platforms to report it right the problem that arises and and it's clear that in some instances the speech will cross the line and be unlawful uh, in canada yet it goes into a bit of a void it's not always clear what happens. It's not clear if the platform has taken action. It's not clear what if they have what action they have taken. And so when I'm talking about can we get better transparency and accountability on those issues, which I take to be, I have to tell you, I take to be different from the kind of 24-hour takedown requirements or website blocking or automated reporting to the police. That's where I think there's significant overstep in terms of what the government has had to say, or even in C11 where they on the online streaming side start moving into this issue of user generated content and having some potential regulatory powers there or in c18 in the online news side where suddenly you're saying that merely facilitating access to news is itself something that then triggers some sort of rights all of these sorts of things are a piece of where i think the government is is moving in the wrong direction in trying to deal something deal with something that does need to be dealt with effectively and there are better more effective ways of dealing with it before we wrap i gotta ask you this is elon musk's purchase of twitter going to complicate all of these things or make things better yeah i think that's the question everybody's asking right now <laughs> uh, you know 
I, I sort of, you know, I, I think the fairest answer at this moment is that we don't know. We don't, you know, there's obviously been any number of Musk tweets where he talks about Twitter. It's not totally clear how he will specifically change Twitter. What I'll say, though, is that I think the fact that you can have the world's richest person come along and, and purchase this enormously important communications vehicle or have Mark Zuckerberg run another one of the world's most important communications vehicles. Right. And we can, ba- we can literally be talking about how their individual choices can have implications for the expression of billions of people. That's a problem. You know, I don't think it ultimately should be up to Elon Musk uh, or Mark Zuckerberg, whether you think they're bad or bene- they're bad or benevolent, to be making these calls on their own. Are we in the free marketplace of ideas where I understand people who aren't crazy about Elon Musk and the things he said said, bye bye, Twitter. I'm going to another platform. And I'm sure there's a hundred different people out there right now who are currently building new platforms that they hope will be building a better mousetrap. I mean, people don't use MySpace and Napster anymore or, you know, whatever uh, previous incarnations were. Is this just a natural progression? Is Twitter here to stay? Or are we going to see a, a, another paradigm shift moving to the next generation of social media? Listen, I'm an active Twitter user. I think that it's economically has struggled at times. And I think it has also struggled to to adapt over time as well, even just in terms of some of the the kind of services that it provides, the way it envisions itself, the level of transparency on certain issues. There's a lot of improvements that could be made. And whether that's Elon Musk or anyone else, uh, I think that that we could we could see a certainly a better service. Are there people who object to Elon Musk and will decide to go elsewhere? I'm, I'm sure there are, um, but you know when you're a when you're a large, a large enough platform where hundreds of millions of people are actively using you in Twitter's case or billions in the case of, of the Facebooks of the world, it's it's pretty hard to unseat them and the relevance of those platforms, um, is is enormous even if you choose to stay away. Professor Geist, when it comes to this legislation that's on the table right now and the different attempts and online harms which may become legislation. I know you acknowledge that there were some improvements to Bill C-10, transferring into Bill C-11. You're a critic of a lot of the things that are going on sort of between the weeds in this legislation, but are you confident that things are going to be worked out in committee and that if people keep the pressure on, we're going to move forward productively? Or are you nervous about the future? of online regulation. No, I'm really nervous. Uh, I'm not at all confident uh, to be perfectly candid. I I don't think that C-11, frankly, did address many of the core concerns around C-10. There there was an attempt to put back the provision that had sparked much of the initial discussion uh, around the potential inclusion of user-generated content, but they've now put in a new exception to the exception, which I think reopens that door. And uh, so I think those concerns remain. Frankly, the the overbroad application of that legislation, which was a concern in C10, it remains a concern in C11. When you take the position that all audiovisual content is a program and that it is potentially subject to uh, some some amount of regulation by the CRTC. Even if the individuals themselves are not subject to regulation, their content might be as a program. I think that's that's clear overreach. When I look at C18, the Online News Act, and I know it's obviously well supported by um, some of the larger media organizations in this country, but I think once you go beyond saying compensation compensation for reproduction, I think Canadians get compensation for links or facilitating access to news. 
in a structure that, frankly, opens the door to forum shopping, where low-value news services decide to set up shop with a couple of reporters in Canada, because suddenly now they can get on that same gravy train. I don't think that addresses the misinformation issues, and I think it also creates some real harms as well. And so, no, I, I, I can't say that I'm confident. The, the government hasn't provided, I think, enough indications so far to suggest that they are open to those kinds of changes if they you know had we seen more of an opening or to that or had we seen the real changes that they've suggested are there but simply aren't let's say in bill c11 i think one could look at that look at the hearing process and feel good about coming out with a better bill but at this stage you know both the the government as well as at least some of the opposition parties um, may well mean that you know that these bills pass and i'm, I'm not sure what kind of amendments we're going to see Lots to remain vigilant about, and I know you're doing just that. We can find your updates on these issues at your website, michaelgeist.ca. Professor Geist, thanks very much for your time today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru, with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.